Graphic Nature acknowledges the Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we record the show and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and future and extend that respect to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening to this podcast. Due to the graphic nature of this program, listener discretion is advised. Fighting for what's right, for justice, that's what a hero does. It is my opinion without any reasonable doubt and without any reservation that comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. Comic books are pure evil. Satan himself condemns our children to the fiery depths of hell. How a particular tale can come to life in the mind of a reader is endlessly fascinating to me. We have found that all comic books have a very bad effect on teaching the youngest children the proper reading techniques. This balloon print pattern prevents them. I am not a villain. I am a victim. A victim of a society that tortured me. Vengeance will be mine. It'll be mine. Welcome to Graphic Nature, a podcast exploring the inspiring world of comic books, the culture that supports it, the creators, publishers, and people behind the printed pages and digital screens, pushing the medium on into the future in Australia and the world. I'm Zoran Ilyevsky. On this episode, we're joined by Dylan Naylor, creator of Dar and Dill and Patricia. Thank you very much for coming. Welcome to the show. My pleasure. Let's start off from the start. What was the inciting moment for you? getting into comics was it something you saw at a, at a local shop or how did that how did your fascination with comics start i guess um it was a case of there was always comics in the house which was which was uh, you know a major advantage to mm-hmm. being um obsessed by it because there was just i didn't have to buy them or find them or my dad would bring them home i had, my dad's brother was also interested in comics he used to drop them around and they were they were mostly um Disney and some old, older kind of reprint things, Prince Valiant. Mm-hmm. So that, it seems like they were just always there, even before I could read. Yeah, I was right. just like studying them. There's comics in the Sunday paper, of course, and I cut them out and saved them. And there was just something about that particular medium. And my, like most kids, pretty soon I like start to try and imitate the, the drawings and create my own things. And I've also I'm also like an obsessive collector. Mm-hmm. So the the, the idea of like they had numbers and there was older ones and you had to track them down, the whole kind of treasure hunt part of it. So I quickly like discovered Sunday markets and secondhand bookshops and started to like create huge collections and basically just like study them. Mm-hmm. Wow. What, what age was this? It seems like it's very early on. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, before I could, you know, before I could read, I was collecting them. And back then, the Sunday markets had them everywhere because comics were freely available in the, on the newsstand, and you could just get piles of them for like five cents each, two cents each. And so it was very easy to amass a huge collection. And then, as as I went through primary school, very quickly, kids that I knew would get rid of their collections, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I like trade them for like some bubble gum cards or something, and I'd start to uh, you know increase this huge collection yeah right and yeah just something something obsessive from there well, i wouldn't call it obsessive personally i wouldn't i mean you know, i suppose i've got a similar affliction but but uh interestingly you say that other other kids grew out 
of comics. I, I don't, I, you know, I, I kind of figure that they just leave them behind rather than grow out of them. I mean, and I'm just saying that to make myself feel better, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things. I guess the cycle, the cycle maybe is that kids have them when they're, when they're young and then they go through a, a point I found that maybe they're a bit embarrassed by it or mm-hmm. this was, I'm talking of a time before comics were kind of considered cooler. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seems like anime and manga became fashionable and had this kind of geek culture. Mm-hmm. And then it was all right to sort of be reading comics and the conventions kind of changed at that point. Yeah. 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 They did. Guys actually brought their girlfriends along and people, <laughs> it was all more colorful and yeah. the earlier conventions it was just people in dark-coloured long coats just going <laughs> through boxes of comics and no one talked to each other. It was very quiet. And now the conventions of this explosion of colour and people dressing up and people really getting into it and identifying with the characters. And So, yeah, I'm talking about a time when um, it wasn't perhaps cool to be having a bunch of Mickey Mouse comics lying around the house. And then I think sometimes the cycle goes on where they start kids, kids start to get nostalgic Mm. And then they start trying to collect them again or, you know, adults try, try to collect them again to kind of recapture something. But there's that space in between where it seemed like everyone just dumped their comics and they, didn't, they weren't perceived to have any value at that point. And that's where I stepped in and just grabbed all their collections. Nice. How did that uh, – I'm assuming you – all through that and through your adolescence you were, uh, you were experimenting with, with, with actually creating your own. I would use these comics as inspiration and reference. Mm-hmm. And it was also at a time where it, it wasn't easy to get books and stuff about how to draw comics. Yeah. I was really excited one day when I found like a copy of How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. Yeah, right. And it was the only, the only book I could find at the time. And even though I didn't really like Marvel comics and I didn't like superheroes, but it was just, it showed you how comics worked. Yeah. And it showed you, um, you know, the tools that the professionals use and stuff like that. And that was really my only window at that time into how how a professional might go about it, mm-hmm. making comics. And it also helped that both my mum and dad were both creative. My dad was like an artist and my mum went to art school when she was younger. So there was, there was always that um, encouragement to be creative and lots of art materials lying around the house. So, yeah, very quickly I started imitating the things that I liked and grabbing panels from, from other comics and copying them to create new comics. Mm-hmm. So to make this kind of patchwork yeah. of a brand new comic with, with, a, with my own story. And then created my own characters and then started to um, just draw them in class. And other people around me kind of joined in and we kind of like stapled all these hand-drawn comics together into little bespoke mini comics and pass them around the school. Mm-hmm. So this was like high school. This was very uncool in high school in the eighties to be doing this. Yeah. It's before the big kind of boom of um, Watchmen and Dark Knight and things like that, where all of a sudden comics could be seen as something like, okay to have as a high school student under your arm. Yeah. yeah. But these, these comics weren't cool at all. They were just like weird, very weird underground kind of. <laughs> yeah. Hyper violent, bizarre comics that I just um, just had to get out of my system, and and through that I created these characters, and two of those characters were Dart and Dill, which characters that I still draw to this day. Wow, what what age did did you start? What age did you did that, did they first become published? 
the Darn Dill characters? They were first professionally published by, um, there was an anthology magazine called Fox Comics mm-hmm. in the 80s. And that was the first time I found other people locally that were drawing comics. And I made a lot of good friends through that. And I used to go to these meetings and they'd plan these new issues and bring out these kind of originally mini comics and then magazine sized magazines that became um, more professional as they went on. And then eventually they had international distribution. Wow. And through that, I met Greg Gates and Ian Eddy and a bunch of other cartoonists that were working at that time. They were like a bit older than me, so I like learned a lot from them really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's where I had my first published work in those magazines. And that the publisher of those magazines also saw my enthusiasm and agreed to put out the first Darn Dill comic, which is, which is called Frankie Lane's Comics and Stories. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was the original title of these comics I'm doing in high school. Yeah, right. And Frankie Lane's Comics and Stories was, was like a whole bunch of different characters and very surreal kind of arty kind of comics. And then, but Darn Dill were like the stars of it. And then eventually the comic came to be called Darn Dill. Right, right. After that. Did you say you, you were just doing stuff in, in pen? Yeah, I, I did everything in biro for right. years. How, for how and, long? Um, for how long? Even, even the first professionally published Frankie Lane's Comics and Stories was, was actually done in like a ballpoint pen. Oh, shit. And I, I was just, that's how comfortable I was with that. Yeah, right. And I tried, I knew that people were using nib pens and brushes and other things. And I tried it and it just didn't seem the same. It didn't work because I, from, from you know, a very early age, I was just drawing in biro, but yep. I, I could do it in a, in a way that it could um, print up nicely. And then um, after I went to, to art school, I um, started experimenting with different tools and then, then I realised that brush was really the thing that kind of suited me. All right. And so that was like a big breakthrough moment. And also I was really obsessed by The Spirit by Will Eisner. Mm-hmm. It has this beautiful brush style, these beautiful tapered lines, thick and thin lines and hatching and and these film noir kind of lighting effects. Yeah. It's used of shadow and light. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. And so finding the spirit and instantly obsessed by that and that sort of kind of changed, forced me to change from like uh, these weird biro drawing, drawings into something a little bit more three-dimensional and a little bit more solid. And so, yeah, in, in the space of a year, it changed from these line, dra- these thin line drawings to these very dark, full bottle of ink kind of pages. Oh, wow. And the comics, yeah, as a result, the comics took on a kind of darker look. And I still, I still kind of use that look today. It must have been such a proud moment when, when, that, when that shift turned around and you're looking now at this a, a more realised product once, you know, w- when you made the switch to brush. I mean, you know, what what did that feel like going from biro, you know, moving over to brush? Yeah, it seems like that was a slow transition. But when I look back on on the comics that I published in the late 80s, I could see that I I made that transition really, really quickly. And I just took to it really well. And yeah, so to to this day, I still use that very chunky kind of um, old-fashioned inking style. And now I, I try to imitate the effect of woodcuts and engravings. I'm a huge fan of like old-fashioned illustrations that use that what they call feathering or that kind of dovetail effect of a really chunky. Um, Charles Burns uses a similar style, mm-hmm. a very chunky uh, inking effect. What did it feel like when uh, when you first got published, like professionally? 
was it a was it a very busy time or was it uh or were you just over the moon yeah well i was yeah it was like the greatest thing even though like there was no one really no perceived audience for what i was doing i think everyone knows that that great thrill of when when you have something in print rather than like a bunch of photocopies stapled together and i this thing had like a print run of hundreds which i just grabbed up into boxes and ran around to all the record shops and stocked it in there and then started planning second third fourth and luckily i i knew people in the printing industry that that could give me a, a very professional looking result so i self-published four of these things called frankie lane's comics and stories and then right when that last one came out which looked which i thought looked very professional but looking back on it it's just completely insane like it makes no sense at all but at the time it made perfect sense yeah yeah and I, I was like sending these out overseas and I thought, yeah, this, this is like the ticket, ticket forward, just sending these things out. But it turned out that I was sharing a house with someone and his father, his uncle uh, ran a show bag company. And just by chance, this uncle came around and saw one of these comics lying around and said, I, I could use these comics in show bags because we, we put comics in show bags already, like Phantom and stuff like that. But we, we've been having trouble with like some stuff goes in and it's not quite suitable for kids or we have a, a glut of this one particular issue of a, of a comic and then we put that in and then kids buy five show bags and they get the same comic in all five show bags and they complain about it. So they wanted to create a new product that was exclusively for their show bags that was also completely family friendly mm-hmm. and could I do that? This was like someone coming over to my house <laughs> And just sitting in my, in my lounge room and saying, do, do you want this job making comics, writing, drawing and creating comics? <laughs> yeah. And we'll distribute them for you and we'll, we'll pay you well for it. And, um, so, yeah, it's an extremely lucky moment, I, I guess. This sounds like a fairy tale. That's <laughs> exactly what I wanted to hear at the time. <laughs> I spent all of the 90s doing this, creating these comics and so using these characters, Dart and Dill and some other, other characters. Um, and then built up this huge following for the characters because the, the distribution through the show bags was incredible. It was instead of having to put things on a newsagent shelf and hoping they would sell, these comics would go into the show bags and then kids would take them home and then eat everything in the show bag and then the comic was the only thing left and then they'd read it. They don't yeah. necessarily they didn't necessarily want it, but they had it at the end yeah, of the yeah. day. Yeah, yeah. Right? Kind of this captive, beautiful captive audience that went on for like 10 years. Wow. And these kids, these kids would return to the show each year to get the next issue and send in letters. And they were really devoted. I've, I've still got thousands and thousands of drawings and letters and things that they sent in. That's amazing. Yeah, there's, like, there's no other way I could have reached that audience in that way. Wow. So it was, it was just, yeah, it was just a wonderful accident, I guess. <laughs> and was it, was it a, a thing where it was sustainable enough for you or it was just one thing that you know you did once a year i would need two of these comics per year Mm -hmm. and yeah that that would pay well enough that uh, it could keep me um keep me alive so i could like just basically draw other comics and so at that time i was doing i had about eight different kind of jobs so i was doing freelance illustration commercial kind of things all cartoons Mm -hmm. i was working for these educational magazines called Pursuit and Challenge, these things that would be published in schools and distributed within school libraries, yep. which needed comics. I was doing comics for 
bands, like promotional kind of comics. Oh, wow. Did a comic based on Martin Malloy, Tony Martin and Mick Malloy. Ah, the, yes, that's radio, right. Yep, yep, yep. The three issues of that. And also did an underground comic called Pop Culture and Two Minute Noodles. It's kind of a punk sharehouse, dogs in space, young ones kind of pastiche. Yeah. I did many issues of that. Yes, super productive in the time, but underneath everything, these showbag comics would enable all these other things to happen. Right, 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 yeah. And uh, created this situation where I didn't have to get like a real job. Oh, that's amazing. How long did that last for? Pretty much the entire of 90s. What? Well, so you were still, so the Darn Deal stuff was still getting published like well into the, you know, like what, 89, 90, 98, 99? Yeah, yeah. And then it, it would have gone on except I think the showbag company, that particular showbag company went under and there wasn't really, I couldn't really strike that deal with any other company. It was just one of those freakish things. Yeah, right. And um, I, quick, I quickly tried to bring this product over to other companies, and, but nobody was doing anything like that. Yeah, so it was, it was very supportive and visionary of this showbag company to put faith into a local product like that. Because mm, yeah. before that, they were just using unsold newsagent comics that they could get cheaply. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And then after that, they, they went back to using um, a similar kind of thing. And they were all American, uh, you know, generic kind of yeah, yeah. comics. The fact that they invested the time and trouble to go to get me to do this and then custom print these things and then allow me the time to build an audience and build my skills and build um, the characterizations year after year. And then that allowed kids to kind of identify with the characters and return to them each year. Mm-hmm. And over that time, I made a lot of friends that were um, just kids at the time, but they went on to be drawing their own comics and kind of inspired by that. Yeah. Because there, there wasn't really a lot of that kind of stuff going on that for, in a visible way. People that were locally drawing comics and creating and doing their own thing. There's always been, um, you know, small pockets of, of self-publishing and creativity. And then it really, it really took off in recent times. But back then, it, it wasn't easy to, to find a, um, someone that was creating their own things and doing exactly what they wanted and reaching a mass audience like that. I, I can imagine so. I, I interviewed Owen Heitman, and when he told me that, that he was doing some stuff for you, it was uh, pretty far out. Uh, I, I, was, I was actually shocked. I didn't know. That's an amazing thing to be able to reach out to crew already here. And particularly because he was so young, I think he said he was like 15 when he approached, when he sent through a, a letter to you. Or yeah, yeah, I've, I've still got all these original letters. It was wow. Well, he's gone on now. He's like he's running a festival in in um, in South Australia. Uh, do you keep in touch with a lot of the crew from back then? A lot of those guys like Owen. Yeah, well, I, I talk to Owen all the time. Nice. And um, yeah, there's a, there was a few cases like that of they were just kids when they when they first sent in sent in their drawings or their versions of my characters. And I tried to be as encouraging as possible. And whenever possible, I'd try and run their drawings and give them that that same sense of worth that, wow. that when I had my first book published and tried to, you know, try to pass it on. And, uh, yeah, it was re- re- really pleasing to see some people who, that went on to be inspired and actually work in the medium like that. That's um, That's unreal. That's unreal. The mere fact that you did that. That's that's amazing. Uh, I want to ask you about the way that you constructed the stories for for let's say let's start off with um, Darn Dill. Were you actively creating things for kids, or was it always the intention of the stories to be in that vein? 
the original Dart and Dill comics were were probably you could probably classify them as underground comics. Mm-hmm. Looking back, that they, they weren't even meant for kids. Right. They were just because they were actually quite, quite violent and weird. And yeah, I, I don't know what I was thinking. It was just this stuff was just pouring out. <laughs> and then um, over time, I became more kind of disciplined with trying to tell a tell a proper story with structure and you know work on the dialogue part of it and make make it as clear as possible. And and that was born out of um, practicality, like so. The comics used to be just for like a bunch of my friends and then the ones that I self-published, I knew that there was a, an audience beyond people that I knew and mm-hmm. so I had to communicate more clearly, tried to be, tried to make it look more professional. And then when I did the comics for Showbags, they, they had to be very disciplined because I was they're actually four kids. So instead of you know, to tone down the crazy part of it a bit and replace that with an actual story. So I, yeah, go back to... Um, go back to basics and create create a proper story because um yeah I'm, I'm very proud of the writing part of those comics as well I, I put a lot of effort into those stories and to make them as funny as I can as, as entertaining as I can and yeah I, I think it's it's the story part of it that helps people remember yeah right the characters as well not just the drawing and also I should point out that when I was doing the showbag comics I was also um, passing scripts along to people that I knew and whenever possible, I, I could try, you know, slide them some money for that. All right. But generally that, that was just like happy to, to work on it because um, I, I found that comics were kind of a, like a lonely pursuit, <laughs> like pre-internet. There, there wasn't many people around visibly that were doing it. Mm. I knew a couple of people that were in Sydney and I'd correspond with them through the mail. Yeah. And but you'd never see them and you couldn't keep that chatter going that you can now with yeah. like with, with the net. I'd always, always happy to interact and work with people. So whenever I'd find someone that was also doing comics and I admired their work, I'd say, uh, would you like to do a story for this comic? Like it's usually just two pages, so it wasn't wasn't a big ask. Yeah. And so over that time, the, the comics were usually, I had a, a lead story and then there was maybe two, three, four, shorter stories by the cartoonists of that time that I knew. Yeah, so a book project that's coming up next year will be a reprinting of all those Dart and Dill Showbag comics for the first time complete. Like, wow, there was a collection that was um, just made up of my lead stories. So it was just my stuff. But this, for the first time, this book will collect nearly all of the content of the eight eight issues i think seven issues of dart and dill who's who's that who's publishing that is that you are you self-publishing or that is comic oz the same publisher that's publishing patricia oh, okay cool and the creepy caretaker but yeah the big thing about this is that it's also going to be all in color because the, the show comics were all in black and white right and I, so I, for the first time for the first time this will all be um colored wow. which is you know an incredible amount of work because i'm um, going to go back and Color hundreds and hundreds of pages. <laughs> are you doing? Are you doing the coloring yourself, or is, uh, if you get getting a colorist in? Um, mostly myself. Right. So yeah, I'll just like color a page a night. Oh, and um, uh, digitally, or are you doing it by? Uh, you doing it traditionally? Oh no, it's all in Photoshop. Okay. So I've got to you know locate all the original line work and and also yeah contact all these people. Some of them I haven't seen. 
Oh yeah, for decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And get the get the permission and see if they want to have their work coloured and represented in this in this book. I don't imagine anybody who would say no. That's right. <laughs> so it should, it should be beautiful. It'll be you know this large oversized hardcover book. That's amazing. Because until now, uh, any any collection of my work has usually been like a paperback, small kind of paperback thing, mm-hmm. which is which has been great. But I'm I'm really keen now to get all the work that I've done in the past and collect it like this and get it into libraries and things in a more durable kind of format. Absolutely. Work like yours, the crew from Bug and Stump, Sexton and, and uh, Petropolis and uh, even McEwen with Greener Pastures, all, all these comics that have been around for years really do need to be collected yeah. and, and kept because they are effectively, they, they are, they are, they are historical documents, basically, from the perspective of the comic scene here in Australia. It's really important that we keep a lot of this stuff and, and, and resurrect it, resurrect the ones that have long since gone. I think they need to be there. They need to exist and not just in some stuffy warehouse at the National Archives or, you know, wherever the hell yeah. they, they collect all this stuff. But it's I'm stoked to hear that you're uh, that you're redoing all the Darren Dill stuff and particularly in colour. That's... That I don't uh, I don't envy the amount of work that you've got to put into that, but that's yeah, unreal. That's, that's so that's good. It's very satisfying kind of work. Though. Oh yeah, I, I'd imagine so. And and the mere fact that people are people are, are interested in and they should and they should actually see it. It should be in libraries, um, and that's a great thing because that's now starting to shift. There's a lot more people who love comics who are in the library system, whether it be on a local level or even like at the state level or even at the national level. And so that kind of stuff is moving ever so slowly, but it just seems that it's it's a growing it's a growing movement. And I think it's I think uh, your your work and you know it needs to be in these types of places, in libraries of all of all of all manner, in all kinds of libraries is what I meant to say. You're listening to Graphic Nature. We'll return right after this short message. Hi, hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Graphic Nature on whatever podcast service you use. Uh, maybe even rate it while you're there. Uh, it'd be great if you could throw us some likes and or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and uh, Twitter as well. For more info, check out the website, graphicnature.media. I appreciate you listening. Uh, thanks again and enjoy the rest of the episode. Patricia is 20 years old. Was she in? Was she created in the same kind of realm as Dart and Dill or was it a separate thing or how did, where did Patricia come from? Well, just kind of just as, as one door closes, another opens, uh, a the show bag kind of thing was finishing up. And then at that time I was working for a few years at a toy company designing mm-hmm. packaging and figurines and things. And so at that time I had to um, create a much cuter style, had to had to have a, a more animated looking style mm-hmm. to suit the kind of work I was doing at that point. Yep. So while I was in that mindset, I on the, on the train ride home, I'd started like designing animated looking characters even with a with a possible view of transitioning into animation at that point, I didn't know where I was going to go from there. I knew there wasn't going to be another showbag comic anytime soon, so I was kind of thinking, what what's the next step? And one of the sketches I did was this little vampire girl with a coffin shaped suitcase, and um, so I just yeah kept that sketch. And then again, almost by accident, I, I was talking to K Zone magazine, and that they were just beginning at that point. And I think they'd come into the toy factory to discuss advertising. I was in the meeting and showing some of my drawings. And then the editor on the way out, the editor said, we love your drawings and we 
we could use comics in K-Zone magazine. Again, we're looking for something unique to that magazine. Right. So it's almost a similar story to the Showbag <laughs> comics. Wow. I was looking for something to uniquely brand in their, in their magazine that no one, no one else had. So I, did, I went and got out my sketches and designed a story to go around this character and some supporting characters. So they had and already seen comics. They had already seen Patricia in the in the stuff you'd showed them. No, they hadn't seen it at that point. And oh. no, actually, in fact, what I did was I showed them Dart and Dill to begin with, oh, okay. and they ran Dart and Dill in his own magazine, and they loved that. And so that was like they get to live again. Yep. And this time, it, this time it was in color, in in K Zone, and but reduced down very small. Luckily, I kept those color files too, so that means some of the the work, some of the coloring work for this new book has already been done. Oh, great! I was going to ask you about that. Great, yeah, yeah, cool. Because I did it for K Zone magazine, and then I had an idea. I thought that I could I could run two comics in there instead of one. They already liked Dart and Dill, but that was they were all male characters mm-hmm. in that comic. So I thought. I'll create something that just had predominantly female characters in it. So I got the sketch out and created Patricia the Vampire Girl and she had some gal pals and some supporting characters and a family that they live with and brought all those sketches and the sample drawings in. And then they they, they loved that so much that they dropped Dart and Dill and just <laughs> ran this. <laughs> and, went, oh, okay. and then that, that, that continued on for, for years. That was like a very popular feature in K-Zone. And at one point, K-Zone was, had international editions and so they ran it in the UK and the Philippines and they ran it in Germany. I remember seeing it translated into German. Wow. And, and just wondering how, because a lot of my comics have a lot of puns and mm-hmm. stuff in it. I'm just wondering how, how that actually worked. <laughs> I would have translated to German. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a real buzz, seeing all the international editions. And... And then in, in the end, the Australian version stopped Patricia. The magazine was trying to become more kind of male-orientated, more boyish. Oh, right, okay. And then they didn't want this girl character in it anymore. So that, But the Philippines version loved Patricia. And so when, when Australia eventually dropped it, the Philippines picked it up and continued to run it for years and years and years until the, finally the print version of that stopped at wow. twenty. 2015. So you, so you've been drawing Patricia since. So that that's been. Since 2001. Wow. Are you gonna? Are yeah, you? Yeah. Are, so I'm assuming. I mean, obviously, all that work is still it still exists. Are you hoping to put all that together into a collection as well? Well, as it happens, the the new hardcover book is also being released with a kind of K zone size collection of the comics. Oh wow. So. I, I've got so much of it that it'll, it'll conceivably be about five volumes when I'm finished. Oh, wow. But there'll be a, a f- first volume is 40 pages and it's like the first two years of Patricia Jeez. all collected for the first time. That's amazing. Was the, was the amount, all, all the work, because the magazines were monthly, was that, all, was that enough to sustain you? Like were you able to live off that? Yeah, yeah. So it was not just that, but there was also a magazine called Total Girl published by the, the same people that also ran comics and had a comic called Rock and Roll Fairies in there. Yeah. This is something that also ran for many years, but it's just kind of never been seen since. But right. it's crying out to be collected. It's Because <laughs> I put a lot of work into that as well. Wow. Um, 
it's it's one of several projects that are just basically sitting here. I've been waiting for a publisher to do something with it. Yeah, if all goes well, there'll also be a collection of that in a similar format. Wow. I mean, I suppose, uh, yeah, I would, you know, I probably, you know, I wouldn't be looking in total girl so i wouldn't know that it existed um but uh that's unbelievable man i can't i i i've i've i think i kind of understood that you you worked quite a lot professionally i didn't realize that you had all this stuff that was just you know going for so long there's so much material and it's but it was in a, a transient kind of thing it would just come and go and people would maybe see it or miss it or but luckily you know i've, I've kept it all under my bed and I've got all the digital files that I coloured. And so, yeah, hopefully if all goes well, you'll start to see these things, you know, in a really nice format that can be put into libraries and resurrected. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't see why, uh, you know, if I was a publisher, I would definitely look at, look at publishing. I mean, I'm assuming it was all directed for particular age groups, like four young kids, four young yeah. girls, four young boys. Like, you know, that stuff's the rage now. And why wouldn't, you know... It'd be it's criminal that that shit doesn't exist in a in a in a larger format. Are you actively shopping like some of this stuff around, or is it more of? Well, until recently, I've been, I've been just busy doing I'm doing a lot of commercial kind of work and paying bills. It's only it's only the last few years that I've started compiling it, going back through old hard drives and mm-hmm. scanning in original pages and starting to like collect it all together. Yeah, wow. And then I realised exactly how much I've got. <laughs> that, re- that really, you know. Rather than create a lot of new stuff, I really should make use of all these all these thousands of pages I've already got. Absolutely, absolutely, holy shit! That's blown my mind. That has blown my mind. Like you know, because up until now, a lot of the people I've ever spoken to, whether it be on the show or off the show, we're talking about people who are just starting in comics or people who have been around, um, who have been doing stuff. But it just seems like the realm of the, the age group where people find success is tends to be kind of the younger, the younger demographic who you never hear about because, you know, they're not writing comics with, you know, with capes on them, but more so that they're, they're writing books about, you know, kids and, and stories and for, for that, for kids, for lack of a better word, but, and finding enormous success. And so I don't see why, uh, I, I don't see why uh, your stuff shouldn't be out there and and be sitting aside, alongside a lot of that stuff. Uh, and like I said earlier, man, it, it, you, I can't, I really can't believe that you've got that much stuff. And I implore you, if you haven't already, I'm sure you're thinking about it already. But I implore you to get that stuff sorted and and out and and into people's hands. Yeah, and I mean that, that what I've described is only the the smaller part of it. There's, for instance. Um, I did a newspaper strip in the Sydney Sun Herald that, based on Dart and Dill. It was, a, it was a much more simplified version of Dart and Dill mm-hmm. to suit the kind of gag format of like six panels in a row. Yeah, yeah. And I did that for about eight years. Wow. Every Sunday there was like a strip. And so that, I mean, that, there's a, almost like a book in itself of just that. Jeez. And, and I was mentioning earlier this comic called Pop Culture and Two Minute Noodles. Yep. There's probably... Um, and the most underground thing I, I ever did. I don't know if I could even go back and do that again. It was just something I did at the time. <laughs> yeah. Pretty risky kind of humour. Does, that, does um, the humour hold up? Do the gags hold up? Yeah, but in a way that any kind of underground comic from the 90s, some of the jokes are a little off colour. So there's some things in there that I perhaps have to slightly modify. 
and some stuff I just had to leave out because it just wouldn't suit the humour of today. Yeah, yeah, I was, that was going to be my next question. But the, the larger part of it is basically a time capsule of the 90s, which is like very, very fashionable now. But this captured a different kind of time. Yeah. So they're, they're kind of um, short stories based loosely on real events and real people. Right. But a bunch of stereotypes sharing a house. <laughs> yeah. And, and parties and things that happen. And so it's a docudrama, comedy kind of punk sitcom. Yep, yep. But I got a lot of that stuff. And similar to Dart and Dill, I would send scripts to other people that I admired and I would work on them. So, again, it would be a collaborative anthology of different styles. Oh, wow. And it, had, it has some, yeah, a lot of names in it, like Mandy Ord and Trudy Cooper and Glenn Smith, a lot of the guys from the 90s that were doing some beautiful work. I, I've got them drawing these characters. Yeah, right. And all this work is just sitting there. This is stuff that's never been collected apart from the actual comic books that came out at the time. So that's, that's like another whole big book just waiting to happen. Yeah, right. Considering that you've had some international print, have you looked at um, international printers or publishers with some of your stuff? When I first did this Patricia book, the first thing I did was like send it out mm-hmm. to all the international publishers. And But, I mean, there's, there's so much work around and so many people trying to get published. And yeah. there's really a lot of competition out there. Yeah, it kind of just got lost in yeah, right. Lost in the shuffle. But, yeah, I have tried, but I'm not, not really great at the marketing side of it. Fair enough. Marketing myself, basically. What about, uh, have, you thought, have you thought about maybe even on some level self-publishing a, a, a few or a few copies of some of the stuff that you've got and then maybe going to some of these international conventions at, like in a stall, like as a stall and, and try and push your wares that way? Yeah, yeah. Again, that, that's a real commitment. You got to like, yeah, yeah. You, if you're going to go that way, you've got to really, you got to travel and stuff like that. Um, obviously, I'd love to do that. And, and having the new Patricia book out is something I've been waiting for. Some, something substantial like this that I can then travel around and promote. Yeah. Like I'd, I'd love to take this over to um, conventions and overseas and mm-hmm. show it around because I'm really, I'm really proud of the result. And I've, you know, I've been waiting for something like this to have under my arm. Speaking of conventions, you were mentioning earlier that they have cha- they changed basically the way that comics are viewed for the most part over the years. What's your experience been? Uh, is it particularly a positive one? Like personally for you going to all the conventions, like what's that like for you and, and does it, is it successful? Personally, I find it a really difficult, actually kind of, I have, I have like a mm-hmm. social anxiety kind of disorder that, that means that it's very difficult for me personally. Mm-hmm to attend conventions for a long period of time. Yep. And so I've always had that that problem part of mm-hmm. it because you need to be able to promote yourself. But um, I have a lot of trouble doing that. You know, but yes. at the same time, I love catching up with people. I love seeing friends because originally I'd travel all that way to those conventions just mm-hmm. solely just to catch up with other cartoonists that I knew I'd been corresponding with. Yeah, yeah. And really the, the bit about sitting behind the table mm-hmm. and talking to people as they would come past, that that was the bit I'd tolerate, just so I could get to have a beer with people afterwards. Yeah, have they been? Have have conventions been successful for you in the sense of promoting your work or, or, or selling books? Sales have always been, you know, just enough to make it worthwhile. And 
sometimes it, it's hard to tell whether it's it's worth right. worth it sometimes. But the great moments are when people come along and they've they've followed your work for many years, and they and they explain that, and mm-hmm. you get to hear it, you know, firsthand. Yeah, I'm flattered that the, the people yeah. that bought my stuff. 20 or even 30 years ago, still like remember it clearly and can quote bits of it back to me and stuff like that. To be able to create something that wow. still resonates in their mind after all that time compared, you know, competing with all the stuff that's already out there, the millions of movies and TV shows and the, the glut of information and, and entertainment yeah. that, are, that is now dumped on people and kids. The fact that they can still remember something like that and, um, you know, have a, have a fond memory of it. And just, it's very satisfying to hear that. And uh, talking about feedback, uh, you, you also mentioned earlier that uh, you would hand out scripts to, to friends. Have you ever employed uh, editors? Were there editors at K-Zone? Like how, how, was your, how, was, how was your creative process in that respect? Like were you getting notes and, and that kind of stuff from some of the publishers? I've got to admit, I've, I've, there's been minimal interference over the years from, from editors. I mean, I really could have used an editor for when I was doing the showbag comics. Back then, it was it was just I would just create stuff as fast as I could, yeah. and I wouldn't even, I would get, I wouldn't even get anyone to proofread it or anything. Like, <laughs> those comics were notoriously full of spelling mistakes, and <laughs> and then so the whenever I am reprinting something from back then, the biggest job of all is to actually go back and correct all of that spelling. Wow! All right. <laughs> I didn't quite realize how bad it was until I can see it now looking back. <laughs> and then, and because it's all, um, it was all hand lettered. Oh, I got a painstakingly like, you know, copy paste and shift to correct all the spelling mistakes. I got to like cut everything up and shift it. And that's, but, that's been like the most fiddly part. So you're doing that. So you, when you're, when you're re, when you're fixing that stuff up, you're going in by hand doing it rather, you're not scanning and just fixing. Yeah. Really? Well, I, I I scan the original page, yeah, and but to fix the spelling mistakes, so I got to like cut the cut the lettering up, and shift it so I can add in the O that I forgot to put in, and it's like yeah, it's microsurgery on all the on all the hand lettering, and then, but but after after from two thousand on, I was di- just digital lettering everything so I can edit it properly. Right, right, right. Gotcha, gotcha. So you're not. It's not like you're you're create you're not doing all that surgery now no <laughs> okay all right. i mean i've already fixed the bulk of the stuff that was early on gotcha gotcha so you're saying like even even up until like 2015 they would these companies would just go you're good for it you can take care of everything it's all good yeah well like for instance Kazo magazine i think maybe once or twice in all the time i worked for them asked me to like change something or tone it down. I was basically just left to my own devices, creating things, and yeah, I wasn't given any guidance or any um, editorial advice or anything. I would just hand these pages in, and they would they would print them. It's amazing. The, the only thing that yeah, it was like spelling mistakes. Yeah, right. So yeah, incredible freedom over those years to just basically just do whatever I liked, and I think that I think that shows. I think when a creator is freed up and doing exactly what they want to do mm-hmm. in the way that they want to do it. I think that reflects in the entertainment. I think it comes across, you can see, you can see that the person doing it is having a lot of fun yep. and there's a lot of conviction in it because it's exactly what they want to do mm-hmm. as opposed to someone who has a work for hire kind of situation where you're given this script and 
you know, you don't really believe in it, you don't like it, but you're doing it because it's a job. And the fact that I'm, you know, writing and drawing it, I've got complete control over it. Yeah. I think the result shows, comes back as a high standard and I'm quite proud of it as a result of that. So you should be, so you should be. I just wanted to ask you about your writing process. Are you still kind of working along the uh, the Marvel way where you're, you're drawing and then you write the script and has that changed over the years? I pretty much use the same process of I'll either write a script or what I call draw the script really quickly, like a, grabbing a biro, mm-hmm. still comfortable with the biro, and a sketchbook and getting the idea down as a series of thumbnail sketches really quick. In fact, the faster you can do it, the better. I, I find that um, when I overthink anything too much, the, the story or the drawings especially, it starts to look as it gets worse as it goes on. So what I mean is um, I'll dash it off quickly. So it's just pure instinct. And then I go back and then light box to, to get the same power um, and get the same energy in it. I'll light box the sketches onto some better paper and then improve the drawings, but basically keep the same energy. Yeah, right. So what I mean is I'm, I'm, I work as fast as I possibly can because if I go back and look at it again and again and again and redraw and redraw and change and alter and I start to second guess myself and it's, yep. it loses, it just basically degrades what's there. Yeah, right. But then at the other end, I put a lot of time into the, into the ink work in the line work, mm-hmm. the rendering part of it, and especially in this new Patricia book. It's, it took three years to do the whole book. Wow. Which is just made up of large images Every second page is just one large image. So it's like a comic, one panel per page, very detailed. Um, yeah, a lot of um, careful line work, um, brush and ink. Yeah, re- really, um, it's, it's probably the best thing I've ever done. I, I think it's sort of really knocked myself out on, on this new book. That's great. With regard to the Patricia book, was it hard sticking to the one kind of image per, you know, per, per prose? So because obviously in a comic you've got, you've got multiple panels so you can kind of convey something a lot easier or well, not easier, I should say with a lot more detail. Was, was that constraining? No, I didn't really see it like that because uh, it doesn't have a lot of action, I guess. It, these, um, so each drawing is trying to convey a mood or an atmosphere. So that it's, there's a lot of characters just standing around talking, but it's not boring in the least because the camera angles and the lighting effects and the coloring it's all conveyed through that. So um, I think when comics are more energetic and there's a lot happening, I think you need to have more in-between visuals. But this is like grabbing keyframes, I guess you could call it, uh, key moments and um, creating a, the mood and atmosphere, which was a really important part of this book. So it's, it's not quite a storybook, but it's not quite a comic. Uh, it's just something in between. Now the book will come with that. The, the hardcover book will come with a little... K-Zone reprint. Did you have to ask for permission to use to use that stuff because it was published by K-Zone? Well, no, because I, I, I created it outside. Yeah. Uh, I, I created it independently and then brought it to K-Zone the same way I brought Dart and Dill to them, which pre-existed. Right, right. So you retain all the rights. Yeah. Great. That's awesome. Uh, so with with the advent of, of digital comics and, and artists and creators now switching to almost digital in some respects, 
How have you, have you, are you now currently working in digital only or are you still doing stuff traditionally on pen and paper? I still do everything the way I used to do it. So it's, uh, I mean, I've, I've tried it, but I'm working straight to a drawing tablet or something like that. It's just not me. And I, I can't be bothered relearning as such because I, I actually really in, enjoy the process of penciling with a pencil and inking with a brush. I, I, yeah, I just find it meditative the tactile kind of process of it is like meditation it's I, I really i can't see myself not doing that and in the end i can just take take what i've done and scan it and it's got to end up digital anyway yeah 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 so maybe you know maybe it just takes a little longer but i feel like it's it gives a better result the way i always did it uh have you ever thought of of producing like a digital do you even have uh digital let's say reproductions of your work online so like you know you've got all these webtoon webtoons and stuff like that uh online that people can search for uh, have you considered if you haven't already done have you considered putting let's say uh the the darn dill sunday strips on online for people to kind of to to visit yeah well that that would make sense but it's really just a personal preference mm-hmm. like i i don't read comics in a digital format I sometimes feel like I'm in front of a screen all the time, all day anyway. <laughs> yeah. And the, the whole idea of holding a book that's not illuminated mm-hmm. and sitting somewhere and just holding the book and reading, that, that process is important yep. and more enjoyable for me. And I've got like a million comics in digital format that I could read right now, but I just don't feel like it. Yep. And so that kind of resistance is, is meant it's probably a poor decision, but it's meant that I haven't released any comics at all, I think, in a digital format. Yeah, right. I'm really ignoring the fact that, that this is how it's done, and I will eventually. In fact, the, the new Patricia book, that it is available as a PDF kind of format. Oh, cool. It's yeah. It's one of the first times I've done has been available like that. Yeah, I just, I just see that just because of the access of it. You know, there, there are now people who have whole careers just online. Mm. Just based online, yeah. I always I always find it interesting the the way that people kind of view their own work. I I don't, I don't imagine you being resistant to it because it's ultimately it is a good thing. That I get makes it. perfect sense. I'm just I just really love books and physical objects, and I'm almost making that a point of difference that you can only get it as a book, you only get it as a physical comic. And Even more important to I don't know if that's a very smart business decision. <laughs> <but> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I think I think. Uh, it, at the end of the day, I'm thrilled to hear that you're putting all this stuff together so people can actually access it, and um, it's even more important. And I'm sure there are there are people out there who would be more than happy to put them in their libraries. I, I think that's ultimately the um, the most important thing uh, in my mind, particularly with 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 creators like yourself who have done so much, and it's inaccessible to a lot of people at the moment you know, and has been yeah. for a very long time. And so, you know, I, I commend you for, for wading through all the pages that you have and putting them together because I truly do think it's important that this shit exists on shelves so people can see it and understand its place in history and understand your place in the history of comics because, like you said earlier, you know, you know, giving, you know, allowing others to come in and to play with your toys and effectively mm. add to um, the community is 
paramount. It's the only way that comics can can grow, and it's the only way they have grown um, over the years, particularly in the local scene. And not finding out that you haven't stopped drawing for fucking thirty years is unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's the thing. I, I, it's all this stuff that people don't even know exists, and yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have uh, anybody who can? you know, pop this on a website or chuck it in a Wikipedia or, you know, put it somewhere where, you know, so people can start finding out about this stuff. Yeah, well, I, could, I could really use like an agent or something. You've never had one? You've never had an agent? No, no. I suppose you've never needed one. I've, I've been lucky enough that most of my life I've just been too busy to worry about how yeah. to further promote myself. I've just been so busy just trying to get stuff done that I've already got on my plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the last 20 years... It's just been a blur of just, I've got to finish this so I can start this. I'm already late on this and I've got to get going on this. And there's never, there's never been a pause where I've thought, how could I expand my profile and how could I promote myself? <laughs> yeah, because I found that you need to have something currently in print. Otherwise, people just don't care. So I've had a lot yeah. of books published, like many, many books. But nobody cares about a book that came out five years ago. If I if I yeah, approach a convention or um, if I, uh, approach somewhere to do some public speaking or something like that, it's the you know Dylan Naylor, the author of this book that came out five or six years ago, and so it doesn't sound as good as like author of Patricia that's currently out right now. That's this is the opportunity I've been waiting for to actually like push my profile a little harder. Yeah, yeah, I think, and and I get it because you know a lot of the po- people I've spoken to aren't necessarily the most uh, outgoing. Uh, you mentioned social anxiety, and I, a lot of the a lot of the artists and creators I've spoken to, you know, you know, are you know have the same kind of issue and and find it kind of tough. It's a very common obstacle, I think. Uh, I think in a way that that's what shapes people into being um, artists and writers where they yeah. go away into a safe, small, dark space and just create <laughs> rather yeah. than having a job yeah. where you're working in a, in a high-energy advertising marketing situation. Um, in, a, in a way, if you have some kind of problem like that, it, it actually guides you into what you're doing. And I, I feel like that's what's pushed me into who I am because um, yeah. I prefer to, like, hide in the shadows and create these things and then like push them under a door when I'm finished. It's amazing seeing people at all these, well, it was amazing for the, you know, prior to COVID, but, you know, it was amazing to see uh, the, the amount of creators growing in a lot of the, a lot of the um, independent conventions here in, or here in Melbourne. Yeah. That, that's the thing that amazes me. You, you, the, the artist alleys and um, the, the sheer number of people um, creating things now is if you compare it to the nineties where it was yeah. basically just one row of trestle tables <laughs> and now it's just this ocean of creative people. Um, yeah. You know, embracing, embracing it. I actually can't wait for the first indie convention after COVID. Like I'm, I'm, I'm hoping against hope that a lot of people here in Melbourne or even around Australia uh, really somehow found motivation in the last two years to create to create some cool shit that they can push. Yeah, well, from, from what I can tell, a lot of people use that time to their advantage and put together the project they always swore they would do someday. 
I hope so. I hope so, and I hope we see it. And um, I'm expecting to see a wave of, of the results of that. Yeah, yeah. I hope there's not too many COVID stories, but I would I would love to see a lot of a lot of different books and a lot of different characters. Yeah, I'm sick of the word COVID. <laughs> Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. Dylan, thank you very much for your time. It has been amazing, and I hope we get to talk again at some point, um, particularly once some of these projects are, are all done and dusted and ready to be uh, pushed out into the world. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me. Thank you. It's my pleasure. That's the end of this episode of Graphic Nature. Thanks for listening. If you could please rate and review the show on whatever podcast service you use, it'll be greatly appreciated. If you have any thoughts regarding the show, feel free to send an email to feedback at graphicnature.media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more information about the show, visit Graphic Nature on the web by typing into your web browser or search engine, graphicnature.media. Thanks very much. Until next time, enjoy the comics you read and read the comics you enjoy. Thanks very much. Credits! Written, produced, and presented by Zoran Ilyevsky. Editing and audio production, Sean O'Reilly. Additional editing, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio consultation, Archie Cuthbertson, Dan Moore. Credits announcer, Simon Winkler. Theme character voices, Zoran Ilyevsky. Audio excerpts of Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, Wortham vs. Gaines on Decency Standards, used courtesy of New York City Municipal Archives. You've been listening to Graphic Nature, the podcast.